Hi, and welcome to Ask the Pastor, a segment of the West Hills podcast where you have the opportunity to ask and receive biblical answers on your questions from our lead pastor, Will Duvall. Today's question comes to us from Bill, who asks, should Christians care about the environment? It's a good question. It's yet another relevant, timely question. We are recording this episode on January 28th, uh, 2021. As President Joe Biden has just been sworn into office uh, last week, and one of his top priorities he has made clear in his own words is combating climate change, uh, which he deems an existential threat. He's already rejoined the Paris Climate Agreement. He signed a, a slew of new executive orders banning construction on the Keystone XL pipeline, holding up further contracts with oil and gas companies, creating a new task force. Uh, multiple task forces and initiatives aimed at addressing the issue. But the question uh, for us as believers really is, you know, how should we as Christians view all of this? And specifically, what what does the Bible uh, say about the environment and our relationship to it? And in many ways, uh, we can, I think, trace uh, all of biblical history and, and the gospel itself through the lens of, of that question of, of man's relationship to the environment. Uh, you think back to uh, the, the Bible starting in the garden, ending uh, in, in, a, in a new earth and a recreation. And we sometimes reference in the church the four acts or, or eras or epochs of biblical history, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Um, again, going back to the very beginning creation, Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And we remember what God said at the end of each successive day of creation, God saw that it was good. So we hear that creation pleased God. It brought him glory. Indeed, that's why God created things. Uh, Moreover, at the end of the sixth day, uh, after God has created us, mankind in his image, we hear that then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds and every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, every tree with its seed and its food, uh, fruit, you shall have them for food. And God saw everything he had made. Behold, it was very good. So creation wasn't very good. It wasn't complete until God had not only created us, man, to have dominion over the earth, um, the the Hebrew word there is radah. It means to rule or to dominate. And uh, the other word used to subdue, the Hebrew there is kabosh. It means to bring into bondage. These are strong verbs um, of, of the man's, uh, of humanity's um, involvement and, and, and dominion, subduing of the earth. Psalm 8.6 reiterates that. Um, the, the psalmist prays, God, you have given man dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. But then that sort of a depiction of, of, of a hierarchical sort of, you know, man ruling over uh, creation gets softened a bit by the picture that's painted in the very next chapter, Genesis 2. Uh, when God actually places Adam in the Garden of Eden, we hear now in, in verse 15 that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the verbs there are abad, which means to serve or to cultivate, and shamar, which means to carefully guard or preserve. And so I think we need both 
chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis to get the, the full, robust biblical picture of God's original, perfect, designed intent for our relationship with the earth. Yes, we are given authority or dominion over it, but we're, we're, we're given that and we're, and we're called to use that authority in order to cultivate and to preserve the earth and to care for it and nurture it. Now, all of that, um, of course, goes very bad just one chapter later. Genesis 3, the fall, Adam and Eve disregard God's good, perfect design. They take matters into their own hands. One bite of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, they're told not to eat from, and sin enters the world. It breaks everything. It breaks their relationship with God. It breaks uh, their relationship with themselves and shame. It breaks their relationship with one another, blame-shifting. And uh, maybe most um, immediately obvious and in, 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 in their face is um, the breaking of the relationship with, with the earth, with God's creation. Whereas once God had blessed creation um, and they're ruling over it, now he begins to pronounce curses. It's the very first curse he, he actually pronounces to the serpent. He said, cursed are you above all livestock, which kind of implies that snakes aren't the only Cursed animals, you know, all of creation is being affected now by humanity's fall. But even more pointedly, God says to Adam in his next curse, he says, you know, cursed is the ground because of you. Um, in, in pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it, you were taken your dust and to dust you shall return. So we humans now no longer exist in a perfectly symbiotic synergistic kind of relationship with nature. Now we're at odds with creation, thorns and thistles and tsunamis and murder, murder hornets. You know, this is nature itself trying to kill us. Even the parts of it that we figured out how to tame and to use for a blessing for ourselves, you know, to, to, to grow food and to raise livestock, uh, it'll all now be done, we hear, by the sweat of our brow. Nothing is going to come easy in regard to our relationship to nature anymore because creation itself is implicated in the fall. And we hear about that even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, Romans 8. And now, mind you, this is post-Jesus. This is post-redemption. This is in, you know, the third act of, of the biblical story, creation, fall, and now redemption. You know, we get Jesus and redemption. But even post-Jesus, Paul says, creation waits eagerly, uh, with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for creation itself was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so Paul uses this groaning of creation for redemption as a metaphor for understanding our own redemption. He says, yes, there's a, there's a sense in which, as believers, we've already been redeemed and adopted as children of God, the first fruits of redemption. And yet, Paul says, there's another sense in which we still await a final, fuller redemption. And Paul uses that eager longing 
of creation is a picture for it, that all of creation is, is temporarily subjected to futility, corruption, and longs to be set free from its bondage. And so God has promised us that this, this, this final restorative act uh, that is that is the the, the last sort of uh, chapter of the biblical story, if you will, uh, literally, um, in Revelations ch- chapter uh, Revelation chapters one uh, twenty one and twenty two of of the biblical story. You you get cr- again creation and, and Genesis fall Genesis three. Uh, redemption, Genesis four through uh, through through Revelation, and then final restoration. God promises us that that one day all of creation will indeed be redeemed and restored, a new heaven and a new earth. For the former things will have passed away on that day, uh, Revelation twenty one. And speaking of those old things passing away, we know that environmentally things are going to get much worse before they actually get better in that new heaven and new earth. Second Peter three warns us of this. Uh, Peter says, knowing that, that scoffers will come in the last days, they'll say, where is the promise of Christ's coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were since the beginning of creation. You know, people are going to start doubting and getting impatient. You know, Jesus isn't coming back. You know, the, the world's just as it's always been. You know, the world's always going to be here. This is the way things have always been and will always be. But Peter says, for they deliver, deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world was then, uh, th- that then existed, was deluged with water and perished. That's, that's the, the, flowing, the, the flood, Noah's Ark, in Genesis 6 through 9. But then Peter says, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist, post Noah's flood, Post Genesis nine and ten, uh, the, the heaven that now exists is being stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But Peter says this: Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But Know this, that the, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. They will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we're waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness wells. And so you can read, as I said, the book of Revelation for a more in-depth description of exactly how that all is going to happen and what it will look like, the opening of the seven scrolls, seven bowls, seven trumpets. And with each of them, there's a progressive sort of dissolving of the heavens and the earth. You get earthquakes and rivers turned to blood and mountains thrown into the seas and stars falling from the sky, like apocalyptic, world-ending, world-annihilating, melting-type stuff. And for that reason, many Christians will say, we'll see, we don't need to care about the earth because God's going to destroy it all anyway. Like if we don't burn the world to the ground, God's going to do it. And he's already promised he's, he's going to do And then he's going to rebuild a new one. And so who cares about environmental concerns? You know, we've, we've been given dominion. Uh, we, we've got authority, you know, it's all to be used and abused by us anyway. At the most extreme, I've, I've literally heard Christians say this, that uh, if we do burn the world down, you know, maybe that would just hasten the Lord's return. Um, but Peter, 
I think we, we need to pay attention here. Peter actually instructs us in that very same passage of how it is that we are to hasten the Lord's return. It's not by burning the world to the ground. He says in verses 11 and 12, it's by living lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. And so uh, we, we, we wait for and hasten. Our hastening is our waiting. Uh, you know, we're not called to, 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 to burn the world down. We're called to, to wait. And why, do we, why are we called to wait in lives of holiness and godliness? That's an odd juxtaposition, but, but why are we called to wait? Well, it's because in context, Peter's just explained that the whole reason God is waiting, that the, the, the reason that God is patient and the reason he hasn't sent Christ to return already is in verse nine, is that God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so I think we need to think about it in this way. Every additional day that God doesn't melt all of the, the world and burn it to the ground he, he, he's patient and he does that in order to give you and me the opportunity to bear witness to the gospel and to give others the opportunity to reach repentance and come to a save, saving faith in Jesus. And so, you know, on the one hand, as, as believers, yes, we can pray with the Apostle John at the end of the book of Revelation, come Lord Jesus, and, and we we want to hasten that day, but Peter tells us we 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 hasten it by waiting for that day and and not just waiting passively but by on the other hand you know we're almost praying that that God wouldn't come so soon that we don't have the opportunity to tell everybody possible that he brings into our our lives and our radius our sphere of influence about Jesus because we should have such a passion to take every opportunity between now and that day when the heavens will melt um, to do everything we can to spread the gospel, make disciples. And, and we've got to realize that the longer the earth is around, the more folks will have a chance to hear about Jesus if you and I are doing our job. And so, you know, that, that brings up one more uh, point here worth mentioning in this conversation. And that's, that's Romans 1, what Romans 1 tells us about uh, the fact that one of the big ways that God actually reveals himself to humanity is through his creation. Romans 1 says, what can be known about God is plain to us because God has shown it to us. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. And so the more that we destroy creation, the more we inhibit unbelievers' ability to see God in the beauty and splendor of his creation. Like if we want unbelievers to be able to witness the majesty of God in, you know, Rainbow Falls waterfall or the grandeur of the Grand Canyon or to see God's handiwork in the stars of the night sky, Psalm 19, you know, and be reminded of how small they are and how convicted and be convicted that there must be something, someone more out there, a creator God. Well, well, we need to make sure then that we're not damming up the waterfall. We're not dumping garbage in the Grand Canyon. We're not polluting the night sky. You know, these, these things are, are testaments to God's uh, beauty and grandeur and splendor and uh, his handiwork. So, now, policy-wise, 
we can absolutely as Christians debate and disagree uh, over over how uh, what best what what policies best best accomplish this. And frankly, um, when caring for God's creation crosses a line uh, of diminishing returns, you know we are also called to care for people as believers. And uh, you know the Keystone Pipeline provides thousands of jobs, and the oil and gas that flows through pipelines like that. Um, improves the quality of life dramatically for millions of people. And so, you know, these are all things that have to be factored into the conversation. Um, you know, where, how much relative weight do we put on caring for God's creation and caring for God's people? Um, that's a difficult, tricky subject, right? Does climate change pose an existential threat to humanity? Um, technically, God doesn't specify exactly how he's going to burn up the heavens and dissolve the earth. So, if God wants to use global warming, whether that's man-made or or God-made or how, however, I mean, God can can uh, bring about the existential threat of dissolving the, the world however He wants. But I think the way that I'd like to kind of close this out and and put a try and put a bow on the conversation is one of, one of my favorite go-to sites uh, for questions like this. It's GotQuestions.org, and I really like how they tie it all together. Here they say. The earth we inhabit is not a permanent planet, nor was it ever intended to be. Sometimes the environmental movement gets consumed with trying to preserve the planet forever, and we know that this is not God's plan, rather than trying to preserve the earth for thousands or even millions of years to come. We are to be good stewards for as long as it lasts, which will be as long as it serves God's sovereign plan and purpose. And so that, I think, is a good way to end. That would be my hope and prayer and plea for us as believers is we should be good stewards. You know, um, We should recycle. We should pursue more uh, energy-efficient um, sources. But we need to also keep in mind that this is not a permanent planet and it was never intended to be. And God has really given it to us with all of its plants and animals and gas and oil and, yes, wind and water and solar as well. God has given all of it to us as a good gift and a blessing. And we're called to cultivate and preserve and nurture it. And that's our uh, our good responsibility. So may it be said of, uh, of us at West Hills Church that we are good stewards who also keep um, the holistic biblical uh, story and picture and, uh, and trajectory of creation in mind as we steward God's creation. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Ask the Pastor. Remember that you can ask your questions each week at the info bar at West Hills or by submitting them online through our website at westhillsstl.org. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast if you haven't already, and thanks for listening.